Welcome to Clear Down Route, the Canadian Aviation and Space Exploration Podcast. My name is Danny Vicar, and my co-host tonight is Chris Johnson. How are you doing today, Chris? I am doing great, Danny. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm all right. It's uh, just all right. After all that cottage time, you're not uh, relaxed and ready to go. Oh, I'm I'm quite relaxed from the cottage, but uh, school starting up again. So, oh, you stress city. Yeah, I have to pack up everything. That's just, I've been kind of just leaving everywhere throughout the house and from school so got to get yeah, that, that ready sounds sounds like you're back in the student mindset anyways leaving it all to the last minute yeah yeah for sure i mean <laughs> why do today what you can do tomorrow if you do tomorrow right so exactly so this is episode 3 of our podcast we made it to number 3 yay so what do we uh, what do we have this evening well we're going to be uh, talking some news there's some news from uh, the 787 Apparently, it's ready to fly now. It's uh, received its FAA uh, certification. Air Canada's put in some uh, new fees, and a lot of people don't like them. And apparently, the space station may be evacuated sooner than we thought. We'll talk about some upcoming events, a couple of them there. Talk about the Toronto Air Show, or the, the Canadian International Air Show, as it's known. And then we'll close off with some listener mail, and we'll... Uh, give a little tease about uh, some topics that we're working on for future episodes. Sounds like quite the episode. First on news this evening, we've got a story here from WestJet. Now, as you may have heard a, a couple weeks ago, the Canadian Medical Association had recommended that pets no longer be allowed to fly in the cabin with their owners. The reason for this was that the pets could cause allergens and allergies in other passengers, making it uncomfortable or, or potentially unsafe to fly on a commercial flight. Um, and that was the recommendation of the Canadian Medical Association. Now, WestJet has come out and said they are not going to adhere to that recommendation. They believe that if you have a pet, it is okay to take it on board and, and specifically to take it into the cabin with you, whether that's a dog or a cat or uh, whatever other pet you've got, I guess. They specifically cite the fact that these aircraft have a, a very good filtration system and that any allergens or, or dander or pet hair would be filtered out from other passengers. They also want to recommend that if you do have an allergy or if you know, you're a passenger traveling with a pet, you actually contact them in advance when you're making your booking and, and point that out so that when they're arranging the seating on a flight, they can create some distance between you. So there you have it. WestJet is not going to adhere to the Canadian Medical Association. I didn't even realize that uh, pets were allowed in the cabin. I always thought they uh, flew cargo, although we have heard some horror stories about pets flying cargo as well. But Well, and, and poor Jack the cat, who last time I checked is still lost somewhere in, in JFK. Yeah. Um, having, having never actually traveled with a pet, I don't know what the, the rules or procedures are um, and, and didn't know whether you know, the Canadian Medical Association or, or WestJet might be right in here what the facts were not not being an expert on this and so i looked into the incident database for the last you know 10 years 11 years um, and didn't find any specific incident where 
where pet allergies had caused an incident on a flight or had, had caused it to, to make an emergency landing of any sort. There was about 10 incidents reported where an allergic reaction was the cause of the incident and, and forced a diversion or similar uh, reaction. And of those, only three of them listed the cause of the allergic reaction, and, and the three were peanuts, uh, wine, and then another was smoke from a passenger in the lavatory who was smoking. Um, so there was no, no specific incident of, uh, of pet hair causing it. And all the incidents listing dogs or other animals uh, have more to do with animals running free on runways in, in remote airports here in Canada, coyotes or, or wolf packs that get onto the runways. Oh, okay. it has nothing to do with uh, dogs or pets fly, uh, running off the uh, aircraft. No, so far as I can tell from the database, pets are you know some of the best travelers. They they cause the fewest incidents. Oh, I wonder, do, do they have to? I mean, there's got to be some sort of a limitation on the size of the pet, right? I mean, you can't bring on a full. Uh, I don't know. Name a big dog here. Um, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't know. Like a Great Dane, just the logistic logistics of a Great Dane would be exactly yeah. would be difficult. Whereas if you have a, a Jack Russell or or a smaller dog, that wouldn't be at all imposing. Um, I, I was on one flight where we actually got held up. There was a gentleman who brought some live lobsters on board that he had caught. <clears throat> uh, he was returning from Nova Scotia and had the lobsters, and they put him in the overhead for the flight. Um, mm. So that that was an interesting flight. Yeah, you were secretly hoping it got really hot in there and throw some yeah. butter in the overhead compartment. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's not the first time that they're kind of going, WestJet is kind of going away from the pack. Uh, we have a story here from the Star that Air Canada is now charging for checked bags on flights to between Canada and the U.S. The first bag is $25, the second one is $35. Um, and again, WestJet mentioned that they will just keep their policy of um, having one free bag, their first uh, free check bag when you're flying to the U.S. So that's interesting. Now, um, this Air Canada policy begins or applies rather to tickets issued on or after September 7th. So a couple of days after we record this and it's for travel on or after October 11th. So if you can get your travel in before October 11th, you won't have to pay for the first bag to be checked down uh, when you're flying down to the States. Uh, and there's more information on Air Canada's website about this if you're worried, if you have any uh, traveling to be doing. I was looking through the uh, comments on that article, and a lot of people seem to be mad or disgruntled at this fee. But I, I'm wondering how many of those people actually fly regularly. Yeah, and and for me as well, as a semi-regular traveler, I mean, it's an irksome fee, obviously, any additional fee or or especially in Canada where air travel can be so expensive, we have fairly remote destinations with fairly low passenger count, so the, the cost is, is driven up. Mm -hmm. uh, and additional cost is always, you know, unwelcome from my, my bank account. But, uh, again, you know, it, it does cost money to operate these aircraft, and it does cost some cash to, you know, fuel them up and, and get them going. So that's, that's how the airline wants to run it. That's, that's their prerogative, I guess. In, Ca yes. in Canada, they're still keeping the first bag being free. So when you check a bag when you're going anywhere in Canada, yeah. it'll be free, and then the second bag will be uh, twenty dollars. Yeah. So I mean, it's not it's not going to be a huge deal, I don't think, to to most people. And and if they do have an issue with it, a lot of those commenters, then well, WestJet and Porter don't charge, and they can book with them instead. 
Yeah, it seems fairly interesting that people don't don't seem to understand that they have to make money somehow, and they're not they're not the first ones to charge for checked luggage. I think a lot of people take a lot of stuff with them on vacation that they don't don't end up, end up using. I know myself. I always try to keep one bag if I'm going for a week. That's one bag. Yeah. And usually it's the size of bag that will fit in the, in the overhead. So I mean, obviously. You know, you can't generalize like that. You can't uh, throw a suit or a dress or something in a small bag, but still. Yeah. So good news for the company in Seattle, Boeing. We have an article here from MSNBC. Boeing 787 becomes a commercial reality. It seems the 787 has received FAA certification, so it can now carry passengers. Boeing said that it expects to deliver the first 787 to uh, ANA, all Nippon Airways, um, out in Japan on September 28th. Quite an achievement for this aircraft, which has been pushed back so many times. Now, I'm not a, a huge jetliner guy. I'm more obviously military and, and uh, history, but... What's the what's the big to do about this airliner here? Well, it's it's touted as uh, being uh, twenty approximately twenty percent more fuel efficient, um, and it also increases the capacity of the cabin not as much as uh, the Airbus A three eighty. It's a, still a single deck, but um, it's basically Boeing's response to the A three eighty. It's it's a larger, larger, more luxurious jetliner. And um, its 20% fuel efficiency comes uh, from the materials they're using to build it. They're using a, a plastic, well, people call it plastic. It's not really plastic. It's a plastic carbon composite. Uh, so it's a totally new material, which has been one of the reasons why the aircraft has been so uh, plagued by delays. So really, it's just a, a larger aircraft with a larger range consuming less fuel. So... Yeah. Now, is there is there interest from additional airliners? Would, would we be seeing these over North America or any or potentially Canadian airports? Well, originally there were 950 um, ordered, according to an article from the Economist. Now, because of all the delays um, over the years, I mean, this aircraft was supposed to be out, I believe, five or six years ago. Now, it was supposed mm-hmm. to be. Uh, full ready operational um, so because of the delays uh, right now they're down to 827 so chances are we will be seeing it um, in in Canada um, not I don't have a, a list of um, companies that have ordered the 787 but I would imagine even if it's not one of the Canadian companies uh, some of the companies operating out of say Pearson or uh, Vancouver Airport would be uh, flying them in here excellent excellent so uh, sticking with the 787, we also have an article from The Economist, which I quoted earlier. Um, it, it's a very short article. It just covers a little bit of uh, what the history of this aircraft is, or rather why this aircraft has been such a nightmare, as they say, for Boeing. The article itself is t- titled Nightmare Liner. Obviously <laughs> a play on words. Uh, the 787 is known as the Dreamliner. Hasn't really been a dream. In any case, the article from The Economist goes through and says, you know, there's been a lot of issues with suppliers. Boeing had um, a part of the aircraft manufactured in Italy and a part of the uh, aircraft manufactured by a U.S. company, I believe, in Wisconsin. Um, Could be wrong about that one. 
But uh, basically what ended up happening was because of the new materials that they were using and because of different um, ways of combining the materials now and assembling the aircraft, they've had a lot of problems with holes for screws and bolts not matching up um, and things like that. So that's one of the reasons it's been delayed so much. Plus, you know, once they finally had one fully assembled and it did its first test flight about four years ago, they found issues, which you're bound to find with any any new prototype, any new aircraft. So then they had to go back to the drawing board. So it's just been sort of a an ongoing, uh, not necessarily disaster, but definitely a little bit of a nightmare for those involved there. Now, according to The Economist, the, pro, the 787 program is not expected to make a profit until they've delivered 1,000 aircraft. So that's that's a huge number there. Yeah, many many more than we just heard they have on order at this point. So they they're going to have to sell some additional units after they get that first order out the door as well. Exactly. And there's been there's obviously every deal with every company uh, has a, a different price tag on the aircraft and different stipulations. So this is a very rough number. Now, I have a feeling that once it starts actually flying, once people see you know exactly how much money can save them things like that they will eventually make a profit well, and i was just going to ask about the the development issues as well it's it's common we're seeing as in the jet fighters as well that technical issues are plaguing these programs in the fifth generation fighters and and all of these new age jetliners are uh, having technical issues as well but they're much more complex than than planes have have been in previous decades, and it's it's probably understandable. There's software, there's hardware, there's the the material science, there's there's a lot of engineering behind an aircraft nowadays. So what that that's my question: To what extent does this kind of delay or this kind of difficulty matter once the planes start flying? Once they start carrying people, will will many people even remember the the birth pangs of the 787? Um, I'm sure their competitors will remember them around the time when <laughs> there's uh, new contracts to be had and they'll be pointing them out. Yeah. As, um, as far as overall what effect it will have, um, I doubt it will, it will have much effect. I mean, once, once you've got something in the air carrying your customers doing its job, then um, you know, you've got nothing really to, to complain about. So. We'll just have to see how the 787 does. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I know they had one down at Oshkosh. Uh, they brought it down and they allowed people to uh, walk through it and uh, get, a, get a tour of that. The line apparently was huge. So um, I, I'd love to see it fly or at least on the ground at Pearson maybe one day. But I'm still uh, waiting for a day when I can catch the A380 coming in. So we'll, <laughs> we'll just have, have to keep an eye out. Yeah, for sure. Okay, another story here regarding airships. The Canadian broadcaster CBC reports that a Quebec company, Discovery Air Innovations, has recently signed a deal with a British company, Hybrid Air Vehicles. Uh, the deal they've signed is to deliver heavy lift airships to Northwest Territories. Now, these airships, when you see them, you're going to want to say blimp, you're going to want to, you know, categorize with that, but it's not. The, the key there is the hybrid air vehicle. These are vehicles that generate lift both from uh, helium, uh, you know, lighter than air, and as well aerodynamically. So from their forward momentum, they've got a lifting body design that, that generates lift. As well, they've got engines on the side, small propeller engines, which provide about 25% of the lift. Um, so what the, the deal is, is the Quebec company will pair up with this British company to develop this technology 
and adapt it specifically for the, the harsh conditions of northern Canada where mining operations or oil operations need to move cargo and, and personnel in and out on a fairly regular basis. Hmm. Sounds pretty cool. And yeah, I'm just looking at uh, some pictures on the hybridairvehicles.com site, and I'm assuming these are them here. Yeah, they're very kind of flat looking. They look like Thunderbird 2. Yeah, they look, uh, it looks like you got two blimps side by side. Exactly. With, and uh, the the cargo section kind of sits in between yeah. those two blimps there. And and as I said, the, the version Canada is looking at, or the version that the, this Canadian company is looking at, are the 50-ton uh, models, the 366s or 336. Um and and again to you know move personnel and, and mining equipment and for me it's it's an exciting proposition airships are are an interesting way to travel and if you look at the environmental specs on these the the really big draw for this kind of of technology is that it's got a much smaller footprint than uh, a cargo aircraft might have so they can use much less fuel to to travel you know much further and that you know seems like a significant benefit to me and they look cool, you know. They're they're really kind of neat. Now, the part that I'm concerned about is there, there's been a number of heavy lift airship and, and lighter than air services provided or, or proposed, and not many have caught on yet. And and so you got to wonder: is this is this going to be a similar uh, proposal? Is it going to end up that way? And then the second thing as well is is the northern environment. Uh, they've got a lot of wind and, and ice up there, and for a vehicle that big and lighter than air, those are going to be uh, significant issues, I, I, th I think. Yeah, I think I think one of the, the the main the first things I thought of when I saw them is if they have a heavy snow, how do they get the snow off the top? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I guess big they can, and flat. You yeah, know? exactly. I mean, in the, they have a listed height here of thirty two, thirty three meters. That's uh, about one hundred and ten feet. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's that's quite the ladder you got to get up there. Um, and and sixty percent of the lift is derived from the lighter than air portion. So you start weighing that portion of the lift mm -hmm. down and and you've got most of your lift in in jeopardy yeah so i'm sure may, maybe they'll make them a little bit more well a little bit less flat on top for our purposes yeah i'm sure they'll i mean you know this is their business i'm sure they'll look at it they, they they've signed up the expertise of the quebec company to aid them in in the transition um and right now they're they're still working out the paperwork they're hoping to get that finished next year and then to get some of these in the air um, in 2014. So still a few years before it comes to fruition, but that's what they're looking at. Yeah, these look like uh, just kind of reminds me of Dumbo, just <laughs> really big. Um, you know, their their listed maximum uh, speed is about 104 knots. True, so that they're definitely not going anywhere as fast as the the jets, but it no, looks like they're getting the job done. 15, 20 knot headwind, you're taking down a serious amount of your speed. Yeah, yeah. All right, now a story from space. We've got a story here from MSNBC. NASA says the space station may be evacuated in November. Now, we previously spoke about the space station and the threat that it faced from a lack of rides to get there. And, and we spoke about how if, if SpaceX didn't get their ships up there and certified fairly quickly, the Americans would would be forever relying on the Russian Soyuz rockets to get up there. Unfortunately, a recent launch on a Soyuz rocket, a, a cargo ship, uh, failed. The third, sta er, the third stage failed. 
and it came crashing back to Earth, and, and the cargo ship was lost. And the Russians have since grounded all Soyuz rockets, rockets pending an investigation to the cause of the crash. Um, so at this point, there is currently no way to get to the International Space Station. Now, there are six people up there right now, and they are slated to come back in September and November, respectively, uh, aboard the two Soyuz capsules that are docked to the station. But those Soyuz capsules have a limited lifespan once docked up there of about 200 days. Once that expires, they are stuck, or they have to return. They can't, they can't re-enter past about 200 days. So that means November, the astronauts come back with no way to get them there. We have to leave the, the space station unmanned. And that, that just leads to a whole host of problems, but uh, really not, <laughs> no other way to get through it at this point, I, I don't think. So an unfortunate news from NASA. Yeah, that's really a shame. So the the rocket was just, um, supposed to bring them food and supplies, right? And uh... yeah, it was carrying water, food, oxygen. Now they're they're safe up there. They do have enough supplies to last the the rest of their mission. Mm -hmm. uh, the mission currently up there right now is Expedition Twenty Eight. They will be riding home aboard the Soyuz TMA Twenty One, and and the way that works is. When you launch up on the Soyuz, you don't take your own spaceship home. You take home the capsule of the previous mission, and you leave your capsule up on the station for, you know, the guys who just replaced you. Um, and and so, Soyuz TMA-21, which went with Exhibition 27, flew up on April 4th, and then Expedition 28 took up Soyuz TMA-02M, and, and the distinction there is that the 02M is a upgraded model of the Soyuz. It's, it's the second flight of the latest generation of Soyuz capsule. And it launched in June when Expedition 27 then took their, their ride back home. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's two capsules up there right now with their shelf lives. And, and they've got a, you know, a month and, and a month and a half, respectively, to ride them home. Now, how many people do these uh, capsules, how many people can they take? So I'm guessing... They have to go down in two trips? Yeah, each capsule takes three people. So the, the oh, six okay. people up there right now would be split equally amongst the capsules. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That's, that's quite a little bit more, um, quite a little bit sooner than we previously mentioned. Yeah, and it's, it's a serious problem. For, for example, on the next expedition, um, they were scheduled to assist the, the station with uh, reboost re burns. I think it was three scheduled burns to, to help the orbit. Because um, what happens is, is there's still oxygen up there, and, and as the station goes through that, it, there's a little bit of drag, not much, just a little, and it slowly lowers the orbit, and, and eventually mm -hmm. that can be, become unstable, and it can also change the attitude of the station. Yeah. Now, NASA has said that you know they can fully control the station from the ground, that is true, if things remain operational, but if, if systems start breaking down, if they lose communications or if they lose um, a particular flight system and there's nobody up there to repair it, there's no way to send up supplies to repair it, it could become a, a dangerous situation fairly quickly. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about a month, a month and a half. That's not, that's not that much time. No, I mean, we really need the crew of the Enterprise to start devising a solution on that kind of time scale. Mm -hmm. But I, I've kind of wondered, you know, what, what could they possibly do? Now, 
it, it is true that the SpaceX crew will be launching in November, uh, hopefully with their, their joint COTS 2 and 3 missions, yep. to put the, the Dragon capsule and dock it onto the, the ISS. So there, there could be some question there if, hey, you know, that succeeds and we are in this dire uh, last-minute situation, could it be accelerated even further to allow the, the Dragon capsule to start making ISS trips um, in, in three to six months after November and minimize that amount of time that it's unmanned? And, and then on the other hand, you know, what can the Russians do to get through their investigation and identify what happened with that, that Soyuz rocket to, to keep it grounded? Mm-hmm. Yeah. be interesting to see. Hopefully they uh, get it solved and we get a few more years out of the space station. Because otherwise, I imagine if, if they leave it unmanned for a certain amount of time, you, you wouldn't be able to go back to it. It just wouldn't be safe anymore. It, it becomes more and more difficult as, as time goes by, for sure. Yeah, plus you don't have those burns that you mentioned, so now you have no control over where it's falling down. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, and that's the rationale that eventually we'll see it deorbited as well, is it's better to have it in control than, than out of control. And and again, it's it's from the other side, it's it's disappointing because the, the bulk of science that takes place there, the, bu- the bulk of exploration, involves the manned crew. So by, by losing the manned crew, the utility of the station... And and the value you get from the two billion dollar per year maintenance bill is drastically reduced. So mm-hmm. it's you know it, it becomes an even more extraneous expense in in today's climate. And and the longer the manned flights remain unable to to meet the station, the the more apparent that becomes. Mm-hmm. And on on the Canadian side as well. I think it's uh, Expedition 34, Chris Hadfield is scheduled to fly again. Uh, that's in 2013 or 2014, so presumably something will be done by then. Um, but, you know, if the Soyuz and, and whatnot aren't flying by then, uh, one less flight for Chris Hadfield. Yeah, now, are, are there plans for replacing it? I know I know we talked about, about it for a little bit. Uh, couple episodes ago but are they are there any concrete plans for replacing it at this point in time no not not for replacing the iss there's only uh potential plans for upgrades or, or further uses um in terms of the people who are involved in the iss now china has has announced they are going to be doing a manned space platform as well it will be nowhere near the the scale or complexity of iss obviously this will be their first one and it'll be be more akin to a skylab a single module with with power and life support to kind of test test those systems out in a in a long term space vehicle. 